0: Our first scripture reading is from James chapter two. As we preach the Old Testament in the book of Amos, uh, we like to have a, we like to read from both testaments. So we'll be reading from James chapter two. Dina will be reading for us. Dina, if you would.
1: James chapter two, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can the faith save him? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead.
0: We are continuing this morning in a sermon series in the Old Testament book, the prophet Amos. Uh, So far, Amos, if you've been with us, uh, not a lot of great news. There's a lot of things wrong in Israel. He's putting his finger on a lot of things that have gone wrong that that they're not really awake to. Uh, I've likened Amos to a fire alarm going off in your home. It's annoying. It beeps really loudly. It hurts your ears. But it's trying to awaken you to the fact that something is wrong, there's a fire in the house, there's a much greater danger that is presenting itself. And we continue with uh, this theme this morning, Amos is still preaching to Israel, he's still trying to awaken them, but you'll see there's beginning to be sort of slivers of hope, little, little uh, blasts of sunlight kind of peeking through the, crowd, uh, the clouds. We'll get to that in a second, I won't say any more. Uh, you can follow along in the middle uh, portion, back portion of your bulletin, Craig is gonna come and read it for us.
2: Craig, if you would. The infallible Word of God from Amos 5, 1 to 17. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel, fallen, no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out A hundred shall have ten left in the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord God to the house of Israel, seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pallades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards, they they shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord.
0: All right, we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on this text from Amos together. Thanks, Craig, for reading it. Uh, as many of you are, are well aware, uh, the Super Bowl is coming up in a week's time. If you, if you follow football, you know that the matchup is between the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Taylor Swifts. Uh, but uh, now imagine this morning that, uh, or tomorrow morning, that you woke up and you, turned, you tuned into NFL talk shows. I suppose they have these on the radio, if you know what the radio is. Uh, but, but imagine the cast on this NFL show is discussing how sad all the 49ers fans are. How disappointed, how totally bummed out they are because they lost in the big game. Well, that'd be weird because the game hasn't happened. It happens, you know, next Sunday night. How can they be talking about a 49ers loss when they haven't lost? How can you be sad about an event that hasn't taken place? See, in Amos 5, Amos begins with some very important words. He says he's singing a sad song. He's here to sing a funeral dirge it may even have been that he put sackcloth on his body and kind of sprinkled some ashes on his head. He says he's lamenting. But what is very strange about this lament, quite unusual, he's lamenting something that has not happened yet. He's singing a funeral song for a death that has not occurred. So what is this? Is, is this a dramatic stunt? You know, some sort of like you know, theater in the street? Is Amos pretending? What is he pre-lamenting about? That's what I want to get into in our text today. Why a lament is being sung for something that has not yet taken place. And really what Israel must do if they want to avoid singing this song for themselves. So just two parts to today's text. I know big gasp, not three. Only two. Uh, Part one, we'll talk about a lament over Israel. Why he's singing this sad song. And then part two, I'm just calling seek God and live. This phrase that comes up a number of times. We'll look at that. Look at verse one though. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. So we've got to talk about this. What is a lament? What does that mean? A lament is a kind of prayer, a song sometimes, that expresses sorrow, pain, and confusion. It lets out these, I mean, what we perceive at least as unpleasant, uh, maybe even unwanted emotions in a way that honors God. You go and read the Psalms, there's laments all over the place there. According to some ways of counting, uh, there are more laments than there are uh, Psalms of praise. And again, if you read the Psalms, all kinds of things come up as reasons for lament. The death of loved ones, you know, generic troubles, attacks from enemies, internal doubt, confusion, discouragement, the absence of God, you know, so on and so forth. All kinds of things can be and should be lamented about. And again, sometimes in the Psalms, laments are offered directly by the person suffering. It's like, oh, Lord, look at what's going on with me. But other times, laments are offered on behalf of another. You can lament the difficulty that someone else is experiencing. So sympathy, empathy, the bearing of others' burdens, these are part of communal lament. And this kind of lament that one does on behalf of another, that's what's going on in verse 1. Amos is lamenting for Israel, sort of on behalf of Israel. He is not from there, remember? He's from away. He's from Judah. But when he learns, when he hears of what's going to happen to Israel, it's it's lamentable. He laments over them. He laments for them. Which, by the way, it's quite a beautiful sentiment, if you think about it. That the people of God can be those who are not only sad about their own struggles, which is fine, but they can care for other people's struggles. They can bear the burdens on behalf of someone else. They can lament even over their enemies. Amos, though a prophet, he's acting pretty priestly here. He's lamenting over Israel. Now why? Look at verse 2. Because Israel has fallen, no more to rise. They are forsaken, no one's there to lift them up. In verse three, they've suffered catastrophic losses, losing, according to the math there, 90% of their people. Now again, as I said in the introduction, this is a strange lament because these things haven't taken place yet. Israel is not fallen. In fact, I, I said in, in other times in this series, when Amos was prophesying, Israel is at its zenith the height of its power. They haven't been this healthy economically and militarily since the days of Solomon. Israel is winning. <laughs> so it feels very weird then to come and express grief for a people who feel like they are on top. Israel's walking around, the other, their chest, chest puffed out, like, man, life is good. We're sort of kicking butt at life. And Amos sort of wanders by with like black clothes, tearfully singing about the end. It's a very interesting uh, sort of uh, opposition here. What kind of end does Amos foresee? Well, it says end where Israel's lying on the ground, struck down. And with more strange language, Amos says it's virgin Israel who has fallen. Now, in, in the Bible, uh, this is not just a person who you know, hasn't you know, had intercourse yet. A virgin probably refers to a young woman on the brink of being married. And if you, in Israel, if you were 13 or 14 or whatever, kind of headed into your teenage years getting married, this was the prime of life. Your whole future was ahead of you. A young woman full of excitement about being a wife, you know, hopefully being a mother. Amos says this is the, the Israel that's lying on the ground. This is who they were. But that's kind of weird because other prophets will say, no, that's not who Israel was at all. Other prophets will employ very harsh language about Israel, kind of referring to them at times like a spiritual prostitute. They're just running around, jumping into relationships with all these other gods. But the sense of Amos' comments here when he talks about virgin Israel, the sense of it is this. Israel died too young. It wasn't supposed to be like this. They were supposed to have a long and glorious life with God. They were supposed to be God's special people forever and ever, but they are being cut down in their relative youth. They had so much life ahead of them. That's what we say about young people who die. On the very land that God gave them, they are forsaken. They have no helper, no one to take them by the hand, and you'll help them stand up. It's a sad picture, and it makes sense why Amos is singing a sad song. Now, I want to talk about this idea of why are we singing a song of grief when you're winning? Why is Amos singing a song of grief when they're, they're doing well? Well, if you remember going back to the last chapter... And we can say that God actually made all these very specific promises about destruction. If you remember, he took an oath based on his own character, which basically means as surely as God does not change, we can be sure that he will do what he promised. So the reason why Amos can sing a song of lament over the people for things that have not happened yet is because Amos is not depending on Assyria or Babylon or Moab or someone to come and invade Israel and wipe them out, but he's depending on God. God's so trustworthy, Amos says, the future is like the past. He can lament about something decades in the future. But I want to get to this question of why. Why is this lamenting prophecy being given? You have to skip down to verse 10. In verses 10 to 13, Amos lists sort of three large categories of, of things Israel's doing wrong, three categories of sin. Now, this is not comprehensive. This is not all that is wrong in Israel. If you, if you were here last week, we talked a lot about false worship. False worship, not listed here. So these aren't all of Israel's sins. It's just what, you know, Amos is focusing on for right now. But let's take a quick look at the three, three categories here. Verse 10, if you look at it, Israel hates those who reprove in the gate, They abhor him who speaks the truth. Okay, so to reprove means to correct. You know, someone's acting wrongly, you tell them, you're acting wrong. I'm gonna kind of correct you, set you back on the straight path. The reference to the gate means the city gate in ancient towns and cities. This is the place where justice was handed out. If you had a case, you'd go to the city gate, all the old and wise people of the city are there, um, and, and that's where they would make decisions, hear cases. So who is Israel hating? They're hating those who speak the truth. They're hating those who issue corrections, and mainly in public judicial type of settings. Maybe you can think of it this way. Israel doesn't want anyone telling them what to do. (laughs) They don't like to be confronted. They don't want someone who's going to stand up and say, say, maybe put their finger in their chest and say, hey, what you're doing isn't right. A brave and well-functioning court system, that's not what Israel wants. Rather, they hate it. Secondly, in verse 11, they trample the poor and exact taxes of grain from them. Trampling the poor here is not a a physical trampling, but a violation of the rights of the poor. It suggests taking advantage because of a lack of, you know, civic or social power. The pairing of this with taxes has this idea of unfair or biased taxes. It's possibly the rich are using the tax code to get unfair advantages. God tells them, oh, the result of this trampling, this unfair taxation will be you will not get to enjoy your new houses or vineyards. The sense of this punishment is in the same way that you rich people, that you exploited others, taking what is rightfully the poor's, that is the way you will be exploited in turn. You will have things taken away from you. The same moves you used against the poor, they're going to be used on you. And thirdly, in verse 12, The third line, actually, of verse 12. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Similar overtones to verse 10. Justice is being subverted. The ones who have done right are the ones being punished. That's backwards. Judges can be bought. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The needy are not getting what is rightfully theirs. These sins have the result in verse 13 of silencing those who are good, those who might otherwise disagree and say, hey, this isn't, no, we shouldn't do this. All the wise and careful people are like, oof, there's a lot going bad. We're just gonna keep our mouth shut. Why is Israel being forsaken? We might kind of summarize by saying this, justice is being ruined. The civic and judicial and economic life of Israel is overrun with sin and a lack of fairness. Now, part of me, maybe part of you, wonders, that doesn't seem so bad. I mean, like it's bad, but I could think of way worse things. Remember in chapter one and two, we talked about enslavement and killing of innocent people and defiling dead bones and stuff like that. There's like, compared to a lot of those things, we're like, yeah, like that's bad, but it's not that bad. It's like a spiritual misdemeanor. Yes, you should pay a fine. No, maybe you shouldn't go to jail over it. What is the problem with this lack of justice? The main problem is that a lack of justice, a lack of righteousness, runs exactly counter to the character of God. That's the main problem. The Hebrew word mishpat, it's what's normally translated in English or translated justice in English. But the Hebrew word mishpat has this emphasis on action, which is to say justice isn't sort of an idea, like a a philosophical um, ideal of justice. Justice is a way of living. in in sort of Hebrew Israelite culture. It's a set of actions. That word mishpat is used more than 200 times in the Old Testament. Israel over and over again is commanded, do mishpat, do justice. And over and over, particularly those who are normally discriminated against, those normally sort of crushed under the wheels of society. Now why? Well, think of it this way. Uh, When you go to a work event, not a work event, what do you normally say? When I go to a work event, I normally say, oh, my name and what I do. You know, hi, I'm, I'm Ben. I'm a pastor at Resurrection Church. Now, of course, in my life, I do a lot of things. I'm married. I have some kids. I like playing basketball, whatever. But one of the main ways I spend my time is I'm a pastor. That's an introduction to me. You learn a number of things about me by finding out what I do. So when we look through the Old Testament, it's insightful and it's instructive to see how God introduces himself. When God goes to the work party, what does he say about who he is? Psalm 68, four, God says, I am a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. Psalm 146, verse seven, God, I execute, God executes justice, that's that word mishpat, God executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. Deuteronomy 10.17, the Lord your God defends the cause. Mishpat defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien, the, the immigrant is what it means in that context. Over and over, God introduces himself as a God of justice. He's, like, he's basically saying, These, this is what I spend time on in the world. It's not all that God is, of course, but it's one of the main things God is. So I say that all to say is, Israel isn't just sort of breaking some random command in the law, but a society of injustice, a society of unrighteousness, that's a personal affront to God and his character. God is a God who loves and enacts justice and righteousness, and when that doesn't happen, it is personally and profoundly offensive to him. Now, as individualistic North Americans, most of us, won't speak for all of you, we immediately begin to think, well, I can think of some ways I can be more just and more righteous. Perhaps in your workplace, your business, you have the power to make some changes. I know some of you work in the legal system. You can directly advocate and work for justice. That's great. The force of the accusation though, the intent of the original command is much more communal and social than it is individual. Biblical justice, it's inherently social. God's really telling the people in in verse 10, it's sort of not enough for you to individually stop hating those who speak the truth. You also have to create a society that loves the truth. It's not enough if you are a judge to just be a fair judge. That's good, keep doing that. There must be efforts and prayers and work for the whole legal system to be just. There's this collective responsibility placed on the people of God for justice and righteousness to flourish on more than the individual level. Now we've got to translate that to our time and ask some hard questions. For instance, are, we, are Christians to be held responsible for a Canadian court system that allows moral conduct that most Christians would disagree with? And I'm talking about things like no-fault divorce, abortion with no limitations, quickly expanding assisted suicide, you know, et cetera. Are we being held responsible for that? Is that collectively ours to bear? What does it mean for the people of God to pursue justice and righteousness and avoid the accusations leveled against Israel in this passage? I want to give just a thought or two about how I think we ought to apply this. And the main thing I want you to think about is there are middle layers between the individual down here, you know, you, me, the rest of us, and the entire society, you know, way up here. I don't want you to think it's either me or all of Canada. Rather, I think we ought to consider all the other layers. How can I create a just and, and good family? Or if you're a single person, well, you know, how can I create a just house with my roommates, with my friend group? What would it look for there to be a collective effort towards righteousness among the four or five people that I'm just closest with? And as you scale that up, there's another layer. What would it look like for us to pursue justice and righteousness in a small group, if you belong to a small group here at Resurrection? What about at a church-wide level? Like, we don't decide court cases here. No one's coming in and suing their neighbor over a misplaced fence. But we can intentionally avoid, we can resist the sins of partiality and favoritism. We can value truth speakers. We can refuse to trample on or ignore the weak. We can do those things. What what I'm trying to say is justice and righteousness can happen in the spheres, the places God already has us. So yes, in your individual life, great, but your family level, friend level, small group level, larger group level, and then finally, and yes, of course, as time and vocation permit, we can and should advocate for Ottawa and Canada to be a more just and righteous place, great. Let's lobby for more and vote for more good laws to be passed. That's good and important work. I just don't want you to confine yourself to thinking, ooh, I don't, I'm not on the Supreme Court, so I can't do anything. I'm not the leader of a major political party. I can't do anything. There are plenty of levels you can go to work on. But returning to the text, we're a little off track now. This first section was this lament about how Israel was not being like God. God is a God of justice and righteousness. They are full of injustice, unrighteousness, and God said he's, he's going to punish them for it. They're going to be paid back for what they have done. They will suffer the injustice they have perpetrated on others. But we've got to get to part two. The sad song, not the only thing in this text. Part two, seek God and live. During that initial reading, you probably noticed that three times that particular phrase is repeated. Seek God and live. There are a few variations to it, but I'll point them out to you. Verse 4, thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me, that's God by you know, yeah, implication there, and live. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. Verse 14, seek good, not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. I want to talk about what this phrase means. I'm going to break it down piece by piece. Seek God and live. Let's talk about this word seek. What does that mean? Well, when we play hide and go seek, you know, we all play hide and go seek all the time, I know, um, how, does that, how does that game work? Well, the many hide, and you like stand in a corner or something, and, and then one seeker goes and looks for them. But of course, the fun part of the game is the many who are hiding do not want to be found. So I think for a lot of us, we read that word seeking, and it has a connotation of, I am looking for someone who does not want to be found. But I think that is the wrong impression when it comes to God. I don't think that's what Amos is saying. When Amos tells us, seek God, in contrast to hide and go seek, God is not hiding, he is available, he's findable. Seeking does not imply looking without finding. It implies effort. It implies intention. It implies a change of heart. God is not found by accident. He's not found by passivity but he's found by intention, that you actually go and look for him. Jesus will come along later, you know, hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, I can't remember the exact timeline, and he will say, in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and you will receive, seek, and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. And there's this uh, repetition, intentional action, ask, seek, knock, followed by God's responsiveness. So the first step away from sin, the first step away from injustice is going in search of God, putting forth effort. He is findable, he is knowable, but he will not force himself on those who are not interested. So, second, we are, so first we're to seek, second we are to seek God. This will come up again next week if you come back, but there's this tendency among Israelites to spend their energy on religious behavior and miss God. Did you know it's possible to become a religious person and not find God? Now, God does tell us to do religious things. God says, if you want to know me, you can read the scriptures, you can pray, you can participate in, in, in Sunday worship. But God is not synonymous with those activities. They are part of the seeking, but the end of the seeking is to be in relationship with God. You know, you don't date someone just for the mini-putt. Hopefully mini-putt is part of the dating, but the goal of dating is not just to play extensive amounts of mini-putt, it's to find a spouse, it's to find a partner, to get to know someone. We don't confuse means and ends. The goal of seeking is not, oh, it's so fun to seek. No, no, the goal of seeking is to find God. God is gonna tell the Israelites, sometimes your religious activities are getting in the way of a true relationship with me. Israel is to seek God. Now at this point we might ask, which God? Well, verse eight and nine, I gotta talk about this briefly. It has, uh, commentators love to argue about this stuff, but they're like, this is the remnant of an ancient hymn. Eh, maybe, it's, it, it is very poetic, it is sort of inserted here. Maybe they used to sing something like this. Either way, Amos adapts it for his purposes. Which God are the Israelites to seek? The God who made all the stars in the sky. Pleiades is what we sometimes call the Seven Sisters. It's an important uh, constellation for navigators, particularly in ancient times. Orion, it's that constellation that forms like the three in a row, the Orion's belt, again, a pretty bright collection of stars. Both of these constellations are visible to the naked eye. The ancient peoples of the earth, they knew both of them. But what Amos is saying is he saying, don't go seek uh, some, some, some little God who can govern that plain or that hill. Take care of some little corner of, of, the, of the Mediterranean. No, no, you should go seek the God who made the constellations, who hung the stars in the sky. A God who according to the next few lines makes the earth spin, turns dark into morning and later turns day into dark. Go look for the God who decided the ocean should be over here and not over there. It's a beautiful thought, and I think it's rather easy for us to shrink God down in our imaginations. He blesses the food, he helps me go to sleep, he helps me on my test, you know, you high school students here, whatever. Uh, But he, he is the God who cares for small things. He is the God who knows small things, as Megan prayed earlier, the God who knows all the snowflakes, but he is also the God of the very big things. He is a God beyond measure, powerful beyond measure, and He cares about justice and righteousness. So a failure to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God, that is a big deal, not a small deal. What happens when they seek God, seek the God who made the stars? Well, they live. Now you're like, that seems kind of obvious, they're already alive, you know, what what does it mean? What does God mean when He says you'll live? Well, there's a there's a sense in which God means the incoming punishment, the promised punishment that involves the death of at least some Israelites can be averted. This promise has to include extended life on Earth and existence free from that promised judgment. If you read further into each of those repeated refrains, like in verse six, there's this explicit statement that seeking God will result in judgment not coming. There won't be fire and destruction. In verse 14, there's this promise that if the people seek God, then God himself will be with them. In verse 15, a promise, if justice is established, if they really hate evil and love good, maybe God will be gracious to them and preserve some of them. There are these promises, implicit and and explicit in the text that if the people turn and seek God, they will receive life in God's presence and grace. But this raises a question, is this a real offer? Does God really mean this? Does Amos really mean this? And the reason I ask that is because we've already heard in Amos the judgment that's to come. It's as sure as God's own character. It's talked about in the past tense because it's so certain. And that's kind of said once. And then over here, Amos is like, but if you change, <laughs> but if you seek God, that that punishment can be averted or mitigated. Which is it? Is it a real offer? Is it sarcasm? Is God offering it But what well, we know is they're really not going to take it? I want to give you a couple other examples that I think can be instructive. Uh, Jonah 3, Jonah the prophet, preaches to the city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And he said, comes, to, comes to town, comes to their large city, not town, and says, you're going to be overthrown in 40 days. And what happens? Jonah 3, the Ninevites believe God, they repent in sackcloth and ashes, and God relents. And Jonah, as a wonderful preacher and pastor, he's mad. Cause he's like, I really thought you were gonna get them, that's why I came all this way, you know. But what we see in Jonah 3, it was a real promise. It was a real offer. If you turn, there's forgiveness and grace. Many years after Amos, I'll give you another example here. Many years after Amos, a king named Josiah comes along in Judah, in the southern kingdom. It's one of the best kings Judah ever had. He enacts sweeping religious reforms. He's a good king, you know, probably top three, maybe even top two. But the problem was, before Josiah was even born, God had promised, through his prophets, destruction and exile. And he said, it's gonna happen, it's sure. So what happens? Josiah comes along, he leads a national repentance, and what does God do? Second Kings 22, God sends a prophet to him and says, well, there'll be peace in your lifetime. Judgment will be delayed is interesting. So our question, is this a real offer, seek God and live, does God really mean that? I think we can conclude based on the examples that, yes, God does really mean it, it's a real offer. He's shown a willingness to forgive the most wicked and violent nations. But also one good generation does not mean a sort of a full rescinding, a free pass forever. Perhaps God does indeed know that there won't be lasting change. So one the way you could think about these verses is I think they could serve as an encouragement to those who do believe, or did believe. You know, Israel as a whole had gone astray, but surely it wasn't all of them. So a faithful Israelite might look around at a nation that was spiritually falling apart and know, well, God is still faithful to those who believe. There is love, there is faithfulness, there is preservation to the people who still trusted God, even in the midst of the destruction, God will preserve a remnant, some some portion of the faithful. So you could think about this seek God and live as a message to those who believed, and maybe those who could be persuaded for those who had ears to hear. And I think what I wanna say is, I think this could be my encouragement to you from this text, you too, you can seek God and live. See, we may be surrounded by a large majority who disagree with us, A country headed in a very different direction from where we think we ought to go. And by the way, there may be judgment or consequences of the choices our nation is making. And if, if you stay here, we may have to live with that judgment or those consequences. I don't know. But what happens, no matter what happens, no matter what God does or does not do in Canada, the offer is still the same. You can seek God and live. It's still a real offer. And the best part about this offer is that since Christ, in the coming of Jesus Christ, we know there is another side to the equation. It's not just seek God and live. That is very true, but also at the very same time, God has sought us. He is looking for us. He wants to give life to the full to us. Jesus Christ is sent into the world that we might know the God of all things the God of the Pleiades and Orion's belt, the God of the tides, we might know that he is looking for us to show us his love and affection. See, Jesus Christ sought us out that we might become a just people, a people who do justice, who love mercy, who walk humbly with him. And as he seeks us, and hopefully as we seek him, what we'll find is that he will make us as he is. A people of justice and mercy. May Christ make it so. Let's pray. Lord, the, the, the tension in your word that we encounter as we seek to understand it is, it's difficult. Help us to understand a God of both justice and faithfulness and judgment at times, and a God of mercy and grace who is seeking us to give us life to the full, as you say in, in the gospel of John. Help us to cling to this Christ, even as we know that Christ, Christ is clinging to us and holding on to us. I pray that you would seek out many more in our city and in our nation to turn to you and be saved. But we commit this all to you. Ask your blessing in Christ's name. Amen.